Hi guys, hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you are a new listener to this podcast, thank you so much for joining. If you're a regular listener, you already know who I am. But for those who don't, my name is Dr. Kira Kelly. I'm a public health doctor um, based in Galway in Ireland. And my podcast is all about sustainable, healthy living, as is my blog, The Irish Balance. And you'll find me on Instagram at The Irish Balance. I'm so glad to have recently brought the podcast back to you guys. And we have been touching on COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 related topics. Today I am delighted to be joined by two uh, very very special guests. We're going to chat about COVID-19 and I am joined by Laura Lanahan and Kleena Nivukula. Girls welcome to the Irish Balance podcast. How are you? Good thank you Kira. Thank you so much for having us. No problem at all. Thanks very much also for having us. I'd love you both to introduce yourselves and tell the listeners um, a bit about you and your background, I guess. We might start with you, Laura. Um, who are you? Where do you come from? And where do we find you on Instagram? <laughs> Thanks, Kira. So, yeah, I'm uh, Laura Lenehan. I'm a GP in Galway as well, as you know. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Laura GP. So I'm just about to finish up my training and go on my third maternity leave. Um, and I have a big interest, I suppose, on Instagram and with everything I do in pediatric skin, uh, women's health, and now it seems coronavirus is my new baby, especially, I suppose, given that I'm pregnant during this pandemic. So I've been sharing an awful lot of information on that with my followers um, and kind of trying to help everyone through pregnancy and coronavirus as much as I can. Brilliant. And you have even sharing so much content. And I think we've been keeping each other sane by keeping in touch on Instagram. Um, Plina, welcome to the podcast. Um, Plina and I and, and Laura have all connected quite recently and it's been brilliant to be sharing information and support for each other, um, particularly throughout this, this difficult time. Plina, could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, and again, thanks, Kira, for having me. Um, and great that we have connected, uh, despite it being under the conditions of a pandemic. Um, yeah. Dr. Athena Nivukula, I'm a specialist in clinical microbiology and public health doctor. Currently, I'm wearing my public health hat and I'm helping deliver the COVID-19 pandemic response for Cork and Kerry. So it's it's certainly busy. Um, I'm from Cork and I'm lucky enough to live by the water in Cove, which is a gorgeous part of the world. Um, and I'm only a little bit biased, of course, but uh, <laughs> I are with my husband and my very active one-year-old boy who's just learning to run around the place. So he's quite busy as well. Um, I guess in terms of my background, so I completed the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland uh, Specialist Registered Training Scheme, which is, as you know, pretty uh, pretty rigorous. Um, the higher specialist training schemes across the board um, are rigorous, uh, lots of exams, and I had a very arduous fellowship exit exam as well. Um, and I suppose the other thing about these training schemes, and you've probably both found this, is that it involves a lot of moving around. Um, so that can be a bit disruptive, but equally can bring fantastic opportunities. So. I was lucky enough to spend a year of my specialist training in Brisbane, training in tropical infection. So while I was doing there was I was largely working on novel malaria therapy. So new treatments for malaria, which um, thankfully isn't a big deal here. But as we know, is a huge public health problem globally, particularly, let's say, the under fives in sub-Saharan Africa are particularly vulnerable. So it was really fantastic to be involved in that and, and work on the new treatments that are coming out. And uh, the other thing that I was doing when I was in Brisbane was I was involved in medical education with the University of Queensland School of Medicine. Medical education is another one of my special interests. So really, it was brilliant um you know doing work that i loved in the sunshine and uh, getting out on the water into the beach every weekend so great to have a a good balance there which care as you often tell us you know and quite rightly so is, is so important um i suppose brilliant. another interest of mine is antimicrobial resistance um and trying to reduce the threat that that poses again to public health and population health, uh, particularly multi-drug resistant organisms. So I suppose it's important that we remember while our energies are, are needfully and correctly focused on the COVID pandemic right now, it's important that we still remember that antimicrobials or antibiotics are a very precious resource and we need to use them properly so that they can still be there to treat infections in the future. And it's particularly important as we start seeing increasing bacterial infections now following COVID-19 viral infection. Um, I suppose another thing that might be relevant in the current context is that another preventative strategy that we have on top of antimicrobial stewardship, which is the sensible use of antibiotics, um, another preventative strategy for combating antimicrobial resistance is vaccines and vaccinations. So really important um, 
that vaccine preventable illness or infection um, doesn't become a problem now. And I would certainly urge anybody who's listening, who's due vaccination or who is, you know, smallies at home who are due to vaccines as well, that they proceed with those even despite the pandemic. The last thing I guess people need after everything they've been through with these really tough times during the pandemic is a surge in something like a vaccine preventable infection like measles. So certainly I would urge people to stick to their vaccine schedules. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think... Yeah. Um, that's that's so critical and I think it's really funny that we have this world now where everyone's crying out for a vaccine after us having to spend a lot of time particularly on social media battle um anti-vaccine uh, myths and misinformation um it's been pretty rife over the past year but it is very interesting to see the world um clambering to get a vaccine ASAP and uh, it's a funny turn of of things today guys and I'm so happy you both joined me we're going to chat about some key areas of COVID-19 and I think we're all probably a bit overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there. Um, I know certainly as healthcare professionals, we are, and obviously the general public must be feeling it even more so. And I'm so glad Kleena and Joyna have joined me to talk about some key areas. So we're going to talk today about COVID-19 spread, um, about a little bit about transmission, about testing, pregnancy, and um, as much as we can, predictions, and obviously the key protective measures that we should all be taking. And it's important to say that we're recording this today, the 5th of April. So the information that we're sharing today is up to date as of to date. But as the girls will know, will know as well as I do, that information and guidance is changing as new evidence emerges all the time. So um, we're going to start with spread and survival of COVID-19 on surfaces. And Kleena, I might get you to open with just a very basic question for me for our listeners is how is COVID-19 spread? Thanks very much Kira. and absolutely this is a, a really key piece of information so what we do know so far and absolutely as you said you know what we're learning is changing every single day some of what we record here today is going to be obsolete by tomorrow and um, so I suppose it's important that when people are accessing information that they make sure it's current information and that they're using reputable resources um, for that information. In terms of what we do know about spread, and again, we're learning more every day, but what we do know is that the big areas for transmission of infection are direct and indirect spread. So this is a droplet spread infection. Um, so droplets are a little bit larger. So um, when droplets um, emerge, let's say in a cough or a sneeze, they don't tend to stay in the air like aerosols would so they're a little bit heavier so they tend to fall to the ground so the big problems that we've seen around spread is that if you're near somebody um, and this is why we talk about the social distancing of two meters if you're near somebody who is um, unwell with COVID-19 infection and they cough or sneeze those droplets could um, infect you if you're within that range or the other thing that's direct spread and the other thing we've seen then is indirect spread this is where you put your hand on a contaminated surface so somebody who has been unwell with COVID-19 has coughed or sneezed or left droplets on that surface and then you touch that surface you contaminate your hand and then you put your hand to your face so this particular virus SARS-CoV-2 it has a particular predilection for respiratory mucosa so What's happening is that people's hands end up contaminated after touching the contaminated surface and then they transfer to their eyes, nose or mouth and then they end up inadvertently inoculating themselves with infection. Um, so they are the two big drivers for infection at the moment. So again, it's why we keep hearing these messages around wash your hands, keep your hands away from your face, keep your social distancing of two metres and if you're sick or unwell, you know, make sure you self-isolate. It's so important. What we're really trying to do here now is because we don't have a vaccine, we don't have antivirals at the moment. What we really need to do and focus on is making sure that we break the chains of transmission and we limit the spread of infection. And yeah, it's the yeah. basic measures, those non-pharmacological interventions are really going to be critical here until we can get to the vaccine and or the antiviral. Mm. And I know we've seen a huge amount, I'm sure you'd both agree, of, of chat on social media about a recent uh, publication in was it the it was the Lancet journal um about survival of SARS-CoV-2 the virus that causes the illness COVID-19 um on different surfaces um could you touch on that a bit Kleena? Yeah so that article was actually in the New England Journal of Medicine. Oh pardon me it was that's why I lost it in my head. <laughs> no, it's hard to keep, keep up with all the, the, I know. the guidelines and publications but certainly this was a very interesting piece of work um so what they looked at was they looked at virus stability um on various surfaces. And as we were saying, the virus itself is SARS-CoV, so that's severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus two, and that virus is a, a novel human pathogen. Um, 
and it causes the infection or illness COVID-19, which is coronavirus infectious disease, and the 19 stands for 2019. So this particular paper looked at the stability of SARS-CoV-1, which is the SARS virus. It's another member of the coronavirus family, um, and that was associated with the SARS problems that we saw in China around 2003. So it looked at that and it also looked at our new novel human pathogen SARS-CoV-2 and it looked at their stability in different conditions. So kind of the main points that came out of that, um, so what, and that, you know, understandably caused concern, were that they found on plastic and stainless steel, the SARS-CoV virus could survive up to 72 hours on those surfaces. And it also found that the SARS-CoV-2 virus could survive up to 24 hours on cardboard. They did make reference as well to aerosols, um, and they found that they survived up to three hours. Um, aerosols are those lighter particles that float in the air. They don't drop down out of the air. So they could potentially um you know float on the air and they they cause big problems in terms of things like transmission of chicken pox and things like that but at the moment thankfully we're not seeing that aerosols are a big part of the transmission picture um the only caveat i would add to that is that if somebody is, is a healthcare worker and they're working in a situation where there is an aerosol generating procedure then certainly there is an increased risk but we have lots of national guidance around that and the effective use of ppe so personal protective protective equipment in that particular scenario to help reduce that risk um i think really the you know one important point to make and we were talking about this before we started recording is that this was an experimental, you know, these are experimental conditions. So when you're applying this to real life scenarios, again, we're back to basic principles of wash your hands, keep cleaning down your surfaces, um, keep your hands away from your face. You know, if somebody is unwell, um, to make sure that they're not turning up to work and handling packages or things like that, or handling food or whatever the case may be. Um, a lot of things yeah. will depend on the inoculum, of, you know, um, and the temperate conditions, the environmental conditions, that kind of thing will all affect and impact how much virus is actually viable on those surfaces again. So this was all within experimental conditions. So I suppose it's important to to, to understand that and then that the conditions and the, the survival and the stability might be a little bit different in real life conditions. I suppose it's important. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's that's absolutely key to, to lay that out as it is, because it's so easy for we've seen it this week with with a couple of different things in social media. It's so easy for articles to get picked up and posted straight away and context isn't given. Um, and I know, Laura, in particular, you were saying to me recently, you're flooded with questions on social media when these kind of articles get published and they're taken up by headlines and things. How are you finding that? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, the amount of messages I get every time something new comes out. We saw that with vitamin D this week. But the surfaces thing and the New England Journal of Medicine, as Kleena has so perfectly summarized there, God. And <laughs> um, I suppose people worry because they see that and they see the headlines that it can last for up to 72 hours. And as Kleena said, it's really important to remember that this was in laboratory conditions, which means you know, pretty much a stable room with no wind blowing or rain, no temperature changes, no sunshine. So not like the world that you and I live in. And I think that's mm. really important for people to understand because a lot of these come out and they're real medical and scientific and you have to then try and break them down a little bit. So the questions that I get asked are, should we be washing our shopping when it comes in you know should we be accepting packages and if you based it solely on looking at the results in that you would be sterilizing everything and you wouldn't be touching anything so i think it's important to be aware that there were specific conditions so the coronavirus will be broken down say for example by sunlight or by you know um simple disinfectant and using household cleaners at home mm. and the advice that i've decided to give people is that if they're worried, you know, wiping down your your um, grocery shopping after you come in isn't going to do you any harm. It's important mm -hmm. to remember, though, that the most important thing you can do is wash your hands. And um, so cleaning down your groceries, plastic or whatever with simple um, household disinfectant is certainly not going to do any harm and it will kill off any coronavirus if it is there and if you are worried, particularly, I think, for the older generation. And that's really where it comes in, you know, or people that are susceptible or cocooning. That's when they become really worried. Um, but that doesn't negate the need to wash your hands, because as Kleena said, 
the way that this will get into you and affect you is if you have coronavirus on your hands, and then you touch your face with it and it gets into the respiratory mucosa. So it's important to remember that kind of side of things that even if you wash everything down and do everything perfectly, that, you know, you still have to wash your hands. And, and the other question I think where this comes a lot is, should I wear gloves when I'm out? Yeah you know, doing my shopping. And mm. the problem with gloves is people kind of get a sense of complacency, I suppose, with them because they think once they're wearing gloves, then they can't get infected. But actually, if you have gloves on and you've touched something with coronavirus on it, you know, active coronavirus, if you like, and then you touch it to your face, that's going to spread it just the same as if you did it with your hands. So, you know, they, they give us a false sense of security, I believe, and it's not. And the HSE advice is something similar. Absolutely. And it is really interesting to see so many people in the supermarkets with gloves. Um, I've seen it every time I've gone to my local supermarket. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you both. That's I think I don't think there's any aspect of that that's been left unexplained. So thank you. That is fantastic. Um, something that I thought is important to touch on when we talk about spread is transmission um, and timing of transmission of, of COVID-19. Now, we do know, as we have said time and time again, that spread from people who have a confirmed case of COVID-19, let's say, is going to be most likely and mostly from people who have symptoms. So we did see a change to our contact tracing guidelines here in Ireland, whereby in public health, we will now be contact tracing um, from 48 hours before uh, a person who has COVID-19 uh, starts to show symptoms. And I wonder, um, I'm not sure, I think the public are aware of that, but I know I shared a post on contact tracing this week because I'm not sure how much people really understand, uh, like I suppose how much that is a helpful measure from a public health point of view, what it actually involves. Um, but I wonder, Kleena, could you touch on why that change was brought in or um, what we know about asymptomatic transmission? Absolutely. Thanks, Kira. Um, and quite rightly, as you pointed out, there was a change to the contact tracing guidance earlier this week, and it does now. We start contact tracing um, 48 hours um, before the person becomes symptomatic. Um, and contact tracing itself, again, is a really key intervention. It's a really key piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, all of the other measures that we're doing, um, everything that's happening in terms of social distancing, um, you know, restricted movement, self-isolation, testing, hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, equally um, the contact tracing is a really, really important part of the picture as well, because again, it's helping us break those chains of transmission, limit the spread of infection. Um, typically what has been, you know, we've seen different figures come out from, from different bodies, but what has been kind of widely quoted is the or not of two to three. So, the, uh, so that's two to three people. So that's how many people somebody would likely infect. And again, what we tend to see is that people are at their most infectious when they're acutely unwell. Um, the reason for the change, so this would have come from the expert advisory group, the national expert advisory group, and that would have been based then on documents from, you know, and guidance um, from groups like the ECDC mm. or the HO. And I suppose really it's it's a prudent precautionary approach. Like I was saying earlier, most of the evidence that we've seen, most of the experience that has come out of places like China and, you know, other countries now that are closer to home um, would suggest to us that the, the big problems and the big sources of transmission are direct and indirect spread. But equally, we cannot say that um, asymptomatic transmission um, doesn't pose a risk. And certainly it's not unreasonable to, to say that it may cause at least some cases and that it may be, you know, asymptomatic transmission may be, may be the source in at least some cases. So it's certainly a prudent approach. I think, again, it comes back to the fact that we're learning more every single day, you know, and that evidence base and the information that we have is growing every single day. So I'm sure there'll be a lot more will come out on this. Um, and again, I suppose this kind of links into testing. And I know we're going to talk about this in a little while, but really, I suppose the numbers of positive cases that we see here in Ireland, that is of the people who have been tested. And I suppose the testing strategies have changed um, a couple of times as well. And again, that's in um, alignment with the you know international guidance and best mm. practice. Um, but I suppose it may not be reflective of the full number of cases that are currently in Ireland and, you know, even further afield. So it's important to remember that as well. Um, so as asymptomatic transmission, certainly, it you know, it is possible and it does pose a risk. And I'd say we're probably going to learn a lot more about that in the coming days and weeks. And I think it's a really sensible, prudent approach to do the contact tracing now from 48 hours before symptom onset. 
Yeah, and I think it's important as well to to note that like we've all I know the three of us are definitely of this opinion, but I personally am very proud of how um, our government and our leaders in it, particularly in, in the healthcare system have timed um I suppose the different changes to our strategy against COVID-19. I think they have been listening to WHO, listening to the European Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the ECDC, and aligning as much as is physically possible with their guidance and like their you know, their plan to test, 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 I think is something that obviously is leading to some delays in the system, but it really is putting us, um, you know, in line with international bodies and a little bit, I suppose, ahead of maybe other countries that aren't doing that. Um, and it's not, this podcast is not to compare and contrast other countries, but I think it is important to say that, as you said, Kleena, um, it's, a, it's a prudent measure and it's maybe a precautionary measure based on the evidence that we have to date. And uh, I think it's an admirable thing to bring in while scaling up capacity for contact tracing. Um, the next um, area I want to touch on, and I'll start with you on this, Laura, because obviously out of the three of us, you are the one who is with child at the moment, um, is pregnancy. And I know you've posted a huge amount on this, and it's an area that you're quite passionate about when uh, we talk about COVID-19. Could you chat to us a little bit about, about pregnancy and COVID-19? What do we know? Yeah, so it's interesting. Obviously, it's such a novel virus. We know so little. That's the mm. problem, isn't it? And I think um, it's a really worrying time for all of us, myself included, um, with the kind of information that's coming out. And we all hear the scaremongering reports that come from cases in the UK or China. And so what we do know, in spite of what the UK have said, so the UK have put pregnant women into the vulnerable category. They don't have a huge amount of evidence for this and the Irish government hasn't gone along the same lines, which is unusual because actually usually our our kind of plans in, in this regard um, do match up, not with regards to coronavirus, obviously we're mm. quite different, but um, so what do we know? We know that technically women are not more at risk of certainly picking up um, COVID-19 or coronavirus um, than the general population and we have to remember that and we've spoken about this before you know the majority of people will just have a mild disease 80 percent 15 percent will have moderate and five percent should will have severe and there's no reason to think that that is any different in pregnancy unless you look at the fact that pregnancy in and of itself is what we call I suppose an immunosuppressive state so our immune system doesn't work as well as it usually does. And certainly pregnant women are more at risk from uh, the flu, for example, which is why we vaccinate women every year for the flu. But there haven't been enough cases for us to say that this is definitely the case. So there are a few reports out of China. There's one where six women had it and um, had coronavirus in their last stage of pregnancy. They all gave birth and they all did perfectly fine. And there was no evidence of transmission to baby. So that was really good. Then another one came out and they, you know, checked to see. So they, they checked to see was the disease passed to baby in that in that um, study as well. And it wasn't. None of the babies reported the disease and they were all healthy and went home well. They also did um, some research to see was it present in the breast milk of babies born um, to COVID-19 positive um, mothers and it wasn't. So it doesn't look that like it, it passes through the breast milk. The pasteurization process seems to kill it off like it did with other coronaviruses in the past. And that's really beneficial for us to hear. And because of those two studies, I suppose they've suggested that there's no need for mum if she's COVID positive to be separated from baby. There's no need for you not to do skin to skin and there's no need to do to not breastfeed. So that's very reassuring. Mm. Just um, in the later dates in March, I think it's it's just worth pointing out that there is one case that looks like there has been what we call vertical transmission, which is transmission from mum to baby when they were in the womb or in utero. And this needs to be investigated a little bit more. And I know I think that's a really worrying thing for mums to hear at this time, but it's really important to reiterate that actually baby did fine and was discharged 30 hours later and there were no um, issues. So, you know, while it's a worrying time, there is nothing to say that we would be at any more risk. Um, but I still think it's worth pregnant women just taking measures to protect yourself as much as you can because it's so unknown. Thank you. I think I couldn't, I don't think any of us could have put that better. Like I know you've shared 
so much on pregnancy and obviously you know it's, it's a very personal topic to you at the moment and it's a huge challenge I think when we there's a challenge with all the things related to COVID-19 but when we see headlines come out every day and we're bombarded with mainstream news outlets you know publishing and it's great to keep ourselves up to date but you might see one case report that's published by Sky News and the next one published by RTE and suddenly you can feel like there's a completely different situation to the evidence that we actually might have Absolutely. Um, and that's a huge challenge I think we're dealing with at the moment I think you'd probably both agree with with that would you <clears throat> Absolutely. yeah well, yeah. yeah no not so so laura what we're, we're saying breastfeeding is okay from what we yeah. know that's my understanding from yeah. who and ireland as well yeah fantastic and if anyone listening does want to read more on that the who does have um some publications and faqs on that as does the hsc website they have a full page dedicated to pregnancy and COVID-19 and it's a very calming read so I definitely recommend having a look at that um are there any other lists sorry yeah work away here if that's okay and absolutely to reiterate what you said Laura you've done fantastic work around this and it's really important pregnancy is such a worrying time anyway and can be such an anxious time it's important that people have access to to accurate information I guess just to highlight within um that particular um cohort i guess um there is some really useful information for those let's say who have um been involved in fertility treatments or who have had their fertility treatments cancelled um so certainly there are a couple of british groups the british fertility society the hefa and the eshre they all have some very useful faqs on their websites if people are looking for information around that particular piece because again that's also a very anxious time for people Brilliant. And I, I know, Kleena, you recently wrote an article. Um, I know it was it was kind of from a UK perspective, but um, in around miscarriage as well. Um, am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. And definitely. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it comes back to what we've been saying all the time. You know, while at the moment the guidelines are, are saying that there isn't any known risk or any known risk of increased miscarriage, you know, that is associated with SARS-CoV-2 that doesn't mean to say that there won't be evidence that will emerge as time goes on. So it just, I guess, underscores the importance of making sure that the information that you have is accurate and up to date. And if there's any concern at all, you know, about anything in the pregnancy, absolutely contact your GP or your healthcare professional or your obstetrician immediately. It's really so time sensitive and so critical. There is some very useful information as well from the Miscarriage Association UK. So they, um, talk to, um, they, they speak about that particular context and setting as well. So, um, there are certainly useful resources out there, you know, that certainly can give people a lot of information and reassurance during these difficult times. Brilliant. Thank you so much to both of you for that. I know it's such a sensitive topic, but I did really want to touch on it because I know, particularly Laura, you've had a flood of questions about pregnancy and COVID-19. And I think it's really important to, to just, um, you know, mention it for anyone listening. Um, what we'll move on to chat about next is a really hot topic in Ireland at the moment, um, which is testing for COVID-19. And Kleena, I might let you have a, or ask you, sorry, to have a chat with <laughs> us about that because we have obviously seen some changes to our testing strategy in Ireland over the past three weeks or so. And it's important to stress that those are not done, um, you know, without serious consideration of the implications for our population. From a public health point of view, they are always done in line with the evidence that we have, the strength of the evidence and with WHO and ECDC recommendations. And I do, as I say, think Ireland's doing a very good job so far. But Kleena, could you um, maybe give us a few um, key messages on the testing in Ireland at the moment for COVID-19. Of course. Thanks very much, Kira. Uh, yeah, there has been a lot of change. And as you say, you know, our, our criteria for testing has has changed as the days and weeks have gone on. Um, and I suppose there are a couple of important things to understand because I realise and understand it can be really frustrating for people, you know, in the first instance to be told, oh, you're going to get a test and then to be told, oh, actually, now you're not going to get a test. And then it's also equally frustrating and distressing for people who have had a sample taken and they're waiting for the result. Um, I suppose a couple of key points, um, broadly speaking, it's important to distinguish between uh, two very distinct parts of the pathway. So when you are, when you, let's say, chat to your GP and the GP feels, oh, this person meets the testing criteria and they need to get a test done, and then they are within the agreed categories uh, for priority testing, then what will happen is that you will get a sample taken. So there are two separate parts of the testing process. There's the sampling part where either you go to a sampling centre or if you're in hospital one of the healthcare professionals will do it or if you're at home and you can't travel the National Ambulance Service will send out a trained professional to do it but 
the first part of it is that the sample is taken. So that's the first part of the process. And obviously there can be a time lag around that as well. Um, the second part of the process then is getting that sample to the lab. Mm. So there are almost already then you could see that there are two potential areas for bottlenecks. And as we can see, as we'll discuss through it now, there are, you know, lots of potentials for rate limiting steps throughout this whole process. So two separate parts. The sampling is the first part when you get your sample done. Some people call this the test, but this is actually the sampling. And one of the very important things about the sample is that we have um, a suitable sample taken and it's fantastic. Really, people have trained up so quickly in, you know, in being proficient and becoming proficient and being able to take this sample because really the test result that you get is only as good as the sample that is taken. So it's really critical that we're getting that viral material. I know we were talking earlier that this is an RNA virus. So to do the test, it's a PCR test. And what we need to get for the test to be effective to get the accurate result is we need to make sure that if there is SARS-CoV viral material there that we get it on the swab so that it will be there when we run the test in the lab. So a lot of that hinges on good sampling technique as well. So that's one important. Mm -hmm. A second important part is making sure that it's packaged and transported properly. So this is um, a category B infectious substance. So it's really important that it's, you know, the appropriate viral transport medium is used and things like that so that whatever virus is there, if it is there, will still be viable when we get it to the lab and we run the test. Um, mm -hmm. When we get into the lab, then, as I was saying, so this is a PCR test. So without going into too much detail, broadly speaking, this is a molecular test. Um, and again, because this is a novel human pathogen, we didn't have this test before for this specific virus. So broadly, what we do is when we get the sample, so the virus itself, we're looking to get at the RNA, which is the genetic material that's inside in the virus. So we have to break the, the protein that is surrounding the virus and then we can extract this is called the extraction step uh, we extract the viral rna and the nucleic acid and then what we try and do is amplify that up and um, so really it's, it's very important that, that the sample is taken correctly and that the virus is still viable when it gets to the lab so that we can run that test and find the material the viral material if it is there mm. i suppose a very important point to appreciate is that as i was saying because this is a new virus even though PCR has been around for a long time, PCR for this particular virus is a brand new test. And there are lots of steps within the lab when anytime you're bringing in new tests, you know, it takes a lot of time. There are steps like verification, validation for PCR to happen. You need to have the right people. You need to have the right infrastructure, the right equipment, the right reagents. So the fact that the surge capacity in the labs has ramped up so much in such a short period of time to the number of tests that they're doing at the moment it is really, you know, quite incredible. And it's a real testament to the people that are working in the labs. And I know Leo Ragger has talked about the, the unsung heroes and certainly to my mind, mind, you know, people working within the labs, they're equally being exposed to a risk. They're equally a susceptible population, um, you know, and they're running these tests and getting these tests, um, getting the test platform up and running in a very short period of time, despite the global context of huge shortage of reagents and, you know, things like PPE, etc. So mm. while lately it is really frustrating for people to be waiting for results, I guess just to give a little bit of context around that, that certainly things have ramped up massively um, and that certainly there is a lot of work people are working around the clock on this, you know, to, to get these samples taken, to get the test done in the lab, um, even though we may not have the necessary ingredients, you know, that we need mm. to do the test and then to get those results out to people in a timely fashion. And I suppose the other important thing that I would say is that the advice, the testing in and of itself is just one single part of the picture. It's only one piece of the puzzle. So it's really, really important. And when you chat to your GP or your healthcare professional, you know, if, if you are suspected to have COVID-19, uh, the key message would be self-isolation for 14 days from symptom onset. So it's really important, I guess, to try and not get hooked up or, you know, hung up on the test. It's only one part of the picture even though it is very frustrating for people I can totally understand that but there is definitely a lot of work going on and you know trying to you know ensure um robust supply chains for things like the reagents that we do need to do these tests within the labs and getting people trained up and making sure that we can have a timely turnaround but still the advice would be the same it's self-isolation for 14 days and then yeah. equal with the piece around the contact tracing and, you know, your household contacts, restricted movements, all of that. And again, coming back, as I was saying earlier, to the first principles of the hand hygiene, the respiratory etiquette. So it's all part of a picture, you know, I think would be an yeah. important thing to say. Thank you. I think I would be shocked if there's any listener who didn't have a great in-depth understanding now of how the testing process works. But it's so important to lay that out because people like we see it on the public health side. And I know um people see some parts of it from the media but like there are so many steps and it's really easy to just focus on 
the test and the result. And it would be amazing if we had something that had a turnaround time of, you know, an hour and we just had this spot test, but we don't. And it is, there's so much work gone on to try and scale up the capacity of all the different elements of the testing, as you've said, they're clean and laid out so well. Um, I think it's, it's, it's hard the, for people to comprehend that when they think yeah. about delays. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's all behind the scenes work. It's kind of like the contact tracing. It's all going on behind the scenes, really. But definitely, yeah. I guess for the for the general public to be reassured that you know their work is absolutely ongoing and it's going on, you know, almost twenty four hours of the day, really, to get this to to where it needs to be. I suppose just one other two key points about the the test, the test itself. If you do get a result back, people call it a negative result, but in scientific terms, it's actually not detected. It's not the yes. viral RNA is not detected, and um, so that doesn't preclude you you know acquiring infection tomorrow it's all going to hinge on your exposures um you know to somebody who may or may not have COVID-19 so again underscores the importance of the social distancing and all of that um because if you if you have one not detected result you know there are lots of different factors that are feeding into that um so it's important that if somebody gets a result and they're told it's not detected that you know that I guess that people understand that they still can acquire this infection and equally it doesn't mean that they may not have an you know they can have COVID-19 infection and equally have a concurrent bacterial or viral infection so if you know there are lots of different pieces to the picture certainly um, I guess it's a bit more nuanced than just a positive or a negative um, but it's hopefully helpful to, to you know to have that little bit of context for people. Yeah. And as you say, that the test is just one piece of the puzzle. The self-isolation piece is the key. You're, you're supposed to behave as if you have the virus. And I remember very early on, Laura, you shared on your Instagram story. Do people think it was a poll you put up and like, do people think it's easier to act as if you don't want to get the virus or as if you have the virus? And I thought that was a really interesting kind of, um, I suppose, thought. And I know the message from the HSC now is to behave as if you have it. But I just thought it was interesting that you put that spin on it. Yeah, and people, it was funny, I got so many responses to that as well. Yeah. And to to see people's way, different ways of thinking on it was, I thought, just fascinating. I can't remember what the result was um, on it. I do far too many polls. But yeah, it, it, for some people, it works to think that they have it. But actually, for a lot of others, it works much better to think that everyone else has it and that they don't want to pick it up from them and that they're doing everything in their power then to do that. So it yeah. depends. my advice is like that always to say, assume you have it and you don't want to give it to someone. But actually, there are people out there that would prefer to think, well, actually, everyone else out there has it and I don't want to get it. Yeah, 100 um, yeah. percent. And I think it's very like I think it's a really powerful message to think, you know, how can I keep my loved ones out of an ICU bed? I think that is really yeah. what, you know, what we need to think mm. about because then it makes it very real and it brings it very close to home, you know, and obviously without upsetting or, or anybody, um, you know, I think that's the level. I think that's where we're at right now. This is really, Absolutely. To, you know, individually and then across, you know, at, at a societal level, these are things that we can do to protect our loved ones. It's really important. 100%. It's a big challenge, I think, trying to find the balance between getting people to take this seriously um, and scaremongering. And really, I think, Anyone who has taken a look at what's happened in Italy couldn't help but be, you know, a bit alarmed, really. Um, and I think trying to get that, that message across without inciting panic, because panic's not going to help anyone at all. And social media can can be a bit of a factor in stirring that up. But we do need to take into account that while we're, we're saying 80 percent will have a mild illness, and that's a key point to remember, 20 percent will not. And mm. that's not a small number of people. And it could be any anyone's loved one. And that part is a scary prospect but it's a very real prospect these are unprecedented times and I would urge anyone listening to bear that in mind you're staying home and social distancing and washing your hands not just for yourself but for your loved ones for the people that you don't want to see in an ICU bed requiring a ventilator and I know that's a harsh line to give but we do really have to take that seriously um, because it is a motivator it is for me anyway. Absolutely Kira. yeah and I think as you you know with the Instagram pages it's really difficult to get a good balance you know mm. without scaremongering um yeah, not scaremongering but without scaring people yeah. and I as medics you know we understand the serious consequences and we were seeing that these young people and doctors were dying all over the world that were fit and healthy you know mm. so trying to get that across to your followers without scaring them is quite a difficult task to do and and uh, you know so it's it's but you're right. And, and the way I look at it for myself is 
I think that I do not want my mother or father or grandmother to get this and end up in ICU or not even in ICU because they wouldn't be possibly, you know, chosen for ventilation, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely serious. And I think the further we get into it, just as a final point for me, you know, we're seeing in the UK, especially younger and younger people dying with no underlying illnesses. And I think we need to just be really wary of that. Everyone needs to play their part. 100%. Lately, Laura, even you probably would have seen um, Mike Ryan from the WHO has come out now and said, you know, mm-hmm. concerning, we are seeing, you know, it's one thing to expect and anticipate severe illness in the extremely vulnerable populations, which have been clearly outlined in, in the national guidance and international guidance. But now what we are seeing really concerningly is this increase in young, fit, healthy individuals, and there is significant morbidity and mortality associated with COVID-19 infections that wouldn't have been expected. So again, absolutely, as, as you're both quite correctly and, and quite succinctly saying, you know, we really need to protect everybody at this stage. So it's it's just, it's not to be underestimated. This is a novel human pathogen. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really formidable opponent, unfortunately. So it's really important that I think, you know, we just really do whatever we can to kind of get this under control. Absolutely. There's a couple of points I want to finish on. I think this just has been such a valuable conversation and I'm so grateful to both of you. Um, And we've already said for those listening, we will be doing a part two because we all think this is a really important topic. And I think that we have come together in such a great way on this podcast. And I just want to bring up one question that I keep getting asked. And I know Laura is getting asked it too, and I'm sure you are too, Kleena. I might put it to you, Kleena. um, And I know we don't actually know the answer to this yet. So I'm playing devil's advocate. But what do we know about people potentially getting SARS-CoV-2 a second time, having had a confirmed um, detection of the virus previously and recovered from the illness COVID-19. Do we know anything about that yet? Thanks very much, Kira. That's a good question. Um, again, and it's like everything I nearly started, I think I started every answer by saying, well, you know, there's some things, <laughs> there are things we know and there are things we don't know and we're learning mm. every day. But this, again, it, it applies to this scenario as well. Certainly, I suppose one of the things that we do see with PCR, so the PCR test, it picks up the viral genetic material, so it picks up the viral RNA. But like we would say with, you know, lab tests, any any lab result, it needs clinical correlation. So certainly you can, um, you know, pick up the the viral RNA on PCR and have a positive result, but you may not necessarily be symptomatic. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit unclear at the moment. Um, You know, a lot of the reports that have come out of China, let's say, and places that have had a lot of experience with this, it's not really fully clear. Um, So where, you know, did they have a PCR test done that came back as not detected? And was that an accurate and, and a true result? And then subsequently, did they have another um, PCR test done, let's say ten days later, and then all of us, you know, this was all of a sudden um, very highly positive. So it's um, we need more information around it. Certainly, um, I suppose the important thing would be that if people do have positive results, that it needs clinical correlation. Um, it's not fully established yet whether these are genuine reinfections or not. I suppose the other piece. I know we haven't talked about it here. We'll possibly do it in, in the part two or three or four or whatever. <laughs> But um, there is a lot of work going into rapid diagnostic tests at the moment. And um, another piece of the puzzle is around serology. So this is where you look at um, whether somebody has developed antibodies or not after they've had infection. But the the problem with using that in the acute setting is that it can take at least seven to 10 days for somebody to mount an antibody response. Mm. Um, So it it may not necessarily be useful immediately, but something like that would help to inform, you know, the clinical correlation plus what the actual history is would help to inform what test is most appropriate and whether or not this is a genuine reinfection or whether this is simply genetic material that just hasn't been cleared yet from the first infection. So what I would say is that I guess it's not outside of the rounds of possibility, but we just don't know enough about it yet. And hopefully that picture will become clearer. I would think, yes, probably it is possible, you know, that even though people do mount antibody responses and their immune system clears the infection, it is possible that certainly people could be reinfected at a later date, but we just don't have clear data on that yet at the moment in the context of SARS-CoV and COVID-19. Brilliant. I think that's all that can be really said on the topic. We just don't know yet. And as as everyone knows, we've only known about this virus since the end of December. So it's it's a very good example of science in action. Um, I know the last point we wanted to finish on before we, we just, again, stress the key protective measures we can all take Um is my, I know, Laura, you're getting a lot of questions about this, is predictions. How long is this going to last? How many weeks more, et cetera, et cetera. And while none of the three of us have any of those answers, I think 
um, it is an important point that we wanted to stress, um, I suppose, that this is not short term. And I might let you speak on that a bit, Laura. Yeah, I suppose this is a question, again, that I get asked a lot. You know, what do you think? Will I be able to go on my holidays in in September? And these seem like silly things, but they're not because people want to know that there's an end in sight, I guess. Mm. As as Kleena has has said, you know, we don't know. Um, It's a new pathogen. We've never seen it before. And the issue with that is that nobody has any immunity to it. So I suppose... You know, in Ireland specifically, we're under lockdown, If even though Leo Varadkar doesn't like to use that term for two weeks. Personally, I, you know, I can't see that being lifted anytime soon. And Tony Hollihan has talked about that at length, that in order for these restrictions to be lifted, we need to have excellent contact tracing mechanisms in place and we need to be able to test people quickly and confirm, you know, if they're symptomatic and then, you know, keep them isolated well. And we need to be able to do all of that well. And so the reason we kind of we talked about this before, Gira, is I think it's important for people to realize that this is our new normal for now. This isn't something that is going to be lifted in four or six weeks time and then we're all going to get back to normal. And this is going to be, you know, there are going to be some sort of restrictions in place until we can get a vaccine, which realistically you're looking at 12 to 18 months down the line. And that's me not coming from a public health side of things or a microbiologist side of things. It's just you know, reading the news, understanding how it works, you know, we're going to still want to protect our loved ones, our grandparents, our, you know, our our mums and dads, our babies. So that's the way I'm planning for it. And I think it's a sensible plan for people to realise that and realise that we're living in a new normal now, things are going to be different. And it will be interesting, I think, more than anything to see how much life returns to pre-COVID-19, you know? Yeah, I think that's a key point. I think our world has changed. And as much as that sucks and change sometimes does suck, um, there are points of hope and points of light and so much kindness that has come out of this current situation. And as you say, Laura, this is a new normal and we do have to get on board with that. We need to embrace the abnormally normal and, um, you know, try and make peace with that because the more we start to pine for how things were you know there was lots of things wrong with our world the way things were previously and while I'd rather we didn't have a pandemic to remind us of the little things in life and how important they are we do need to um, I suppose start getting to grips with the fact that our world is changed and change is kind of inevitable in the world we live in Um, and a lot of this pandemic has come out of how our world has changed over the last 50 to 100 years so I think that's a key point and we don't know and we can all we can do is stay up to date, stay informed, use the evidence that we get day to day to look at our predictions plan based on predictions and be ready to evolve as new evidence emerges all the time. And just think about how what you can do now. So, you know, and especially for me, I'm thinking about this from a pregnancy point of view or a new parent point of view. Say, you know, I spoke about this yesterday, you know, mother and baby groups are they're gone now. That's not going to be happening anytime soon. So think about other ways that we can do this. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're all turning, I think, to social media a lot and information technology, you mm-hmm. know, Zoom meetings or these kind of things. There, there are other ways to do this and they, that will be OK. And just to remember that we're doing this for the right reasons, we're doing this to protect those that we love and to keep everyone safe and to decrease deaths and, and, you know, across the country. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. This has been an incredible episode. I think my favourite on my podcast ever. So I'm just so grateful. And we will make this a part one of part two, maybe a trilogy, maybe a fourth. We don't know. Um, But I'd just like to finish with the key protective steps that we can all take. And I might get you to start cleaning if there's any that aren't mentioned then or anything you'd like to add afterwards or then we'll, we'll go with that. I know everyone knows them and I'm sorry if you're turning the podcast off right now, but you better listen because this is important. <laughs> yeah, I think again, and absolutely, as you were saying, I, I suppose just in the context of, you know, where are we going and what's happening? And unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball. I think a lot of this, you know, we're, we're trying to look at numbers and it's difficult working with the numbers at the moment is tricky. We have incomplete data, so it's hard, you know, to have robust and reliable modeling. Um, but certainly, you know, I guess the more data that we have and the more figures that we have, then the better informed we are. And, um, you know, it makes the decision making process a little bit easier because at the moment, in fairness to, you know, 
um, you know, the expert advisory group, the Department of Health, the CMO, um, you know, the governmental response, they are making really tough decisions in the absence of, of full information and, mm. you know, data sets. So, and I guess the other thing is that it's the timing of these interventions is so critical and so key, because if you leave it too late, if you leave it to the point where your ICU is overwhelmed and out of beds, then you still have two weeks worth of infections potentially incubating in the community. So that's really what you need to do is try and get ahead of that two week period, which I yeah. think to be fair, I think, you know, people have done a really good job and I think people really have bought in. And as you said exactly, Kieran, Laura, you said it as well, you know, really we're seeing such fantastic um, responses from people, you know, and within the community. And it really is heartening to see all of that. Um, certainly bringing it back to, to the basic first principles, you know, I would say keep your hands clean, keep them away from your face, practice your respiratory etiquette, make sure that if you're symptomatic, you're practicing your self-isolation, your household contacts are restricting their movements. Um, really important that, you know, if you are contacted in the context of contact tracing, that you provide the full information so that, you know, we can certainly do and to, to break the chains of infection and break the, the chains of transmission and limit the spread of the infection. Um, and really, I would think just to, to, to keep up the really fantastic effort that people are doing. And, you know, it sounds really trite and cliched, but certainly to continue to be kind to one another and certainly to make sure that the information that you have is, is accurate and up to date so that it doesn't cause any distress or, you know, doesn't add to the anxiety. Um, you know, certainly I know myself, I find it reassuring when I, I know that the information is from a reputable source and, um, you know, it, I think it helps people to have a little bit of maybe some control then at least that if they're informed, you know, and the information is being shared, which to be fair, you know, the information is being shared by international communities at an amazing rate, mm. even in the genomic sequencing, you know, everything is being shared and that really helps to optimize patient care as well. Um, you know, to have that shared clinical experience and, and everybody learning together. So I would say just to, to everybody, yeah, keep up the good work and keep the hands clean and keep them away from your face. And, uh, and thanks so much, Lena. Yeah. Brilliant. Laura, is there anything you'd like to add to that there? Um, God, no, I think I think uh, Kleena probably covered it all. You know, just remember, we're doing this for the greater good. Stay away from everyone. Stay home. Um, yeah. And I, if, if you know, we saw in the UK this weekend, I'm praying for nicer weather, right? It, it'll make everything so much more manageable if you can sit out in the garden. But don't go to the beach. Don't go to the park. You know, stay at home, please, and just stay safe and keep everyone safe. I couldn't agree more, girls. Keep yeah. your distance. <laughs> yeah. That was the uh, that was the other piece. Absolutely, if, if you do have to go outside, you know, and absolutely, we are all looking forward to some sunshine. Um, but just make sure that you know, if you do have to go outside, that it's that two meters. That's really critical as well. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. And I just urge people if I, this is recorded for, predominantly for Irish listeners, but I do have international listeners. For those in Ireland, please, please stay up to date via hse.ie. That is your one stop shop for all of the COVID-19 information. And the Department of Health website is also a very useful resource with the latest advice and measures and recommendations from the National Public Health Emergency Team. They also do a daily briefing, which you can watch generally on RT News Now, which is where I'm watching it in the evening. It's very good, very transparent and a really good example of public health communication. If you're not from Ireland, you can stay up to date with your health authority and the WHO. Um, and I'd really urge everyone to do that. We will try and get a part two episode together because I can see this episode going down very well. And I'd really like to thank Kleena and Laura for being my guests today. It's been so valuable and I'm really, really grateful that we've been able to get this information together. Um, guys, if you did enjoy this episode, please do give it a like, give it a share, tag us in your stories. Um, you can give us a shout out. Um, you can also get in touch by leaving a comment on the podcast as well. And if there's any um, extra bits and pieces that we haven't covered today that you'd like to hear about, you can let us know and we'll do our best to, to look at that. Girls, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. I really appreciate your time today. Thank Bye. you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon and see you for the next episode. Bye.